Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. Now, in this episode, we're touching on one of my very, very favourite topics, which is innovation and startups. And um, I'm delighted to be joined by Pip Murray, who is founder of Pip and Nuts. I'm a massive, massive fan of Pip's. I think what she has done in taking something that was a, a personal passion of hers from literally from the kitchen table through to a multi, multi-million pound peanut butter empire, as I describe it, is just spectacular. And she is a wonderful human being and uh, has got so many lessons to share from her journey over the last 10 years or so. All the challenges that a founder has as, as they scale up a business, the successes, the failures, what it's like building a team, and how do you expand a business quickly? And uh, what are some of the challenges that come along the way? What fears has she faced along, along her journey as well? And what lessons would she pass on about to other people for you know how to build your own brand and how to create a successful business off the back of something you're passionate about? Pip is full of so much insight. This is a wonderful, wonderful episode. And, and I'm really, really excited to be talking uh, to a founder of a business that I really admire and taking some lessons from her journey. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here is Pip Murray. Pip, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with why. So what inspired you to create the brand Pip and Nuss and where, where did it all begin for you? So I guess I'm, I'm not one of those people that ever thought I'd actually run a business. So starting up Pip and Nuss, I think almost caught me as much by as surprise as it did my friends and family when I started sort of throwing the idea around. But I approached Pip and Nuss or this sort of the prospect of starting a business from a very consumer perspective so I am a total peanut butter addict undeniably I eat it every single day I had it this morning just for breakfast but you know eight nine years ago when I was sort of thinking about the, the sort of prospect of of starting up a business for me this product was something I like naturally loved and sort of ate a lot of I was marathon training at the time I'd done lots of marathons over the last sort of 10 years and for me I'm always interested in real food, gives you proper nutrition and tastes great. And I'm one of those consumers that I think is very kind of prevalent now, which basically wants it all. You want great tasting food whilst at the same time being good for you. And nut butter, I think, is one of those brilliant products, which if you kind of scan the supermarket shelves, really delivers on that promise. And I sort of came into it kind of as a consumer shopping the fixture and I found that nearly every single brand that I picked up either had palm oil in it a lot of them were highly processed didn't really taste that nice yet if I made it at home in my kitchen I found that it was a much better product more natural and just sort of started to kind of fall into it I guess and I think for me it was also a little bit of influence from looking at what was happening over in the states things like almond butter obviously it's the home of peanut butter in the US was but things like almond butter were massive over there and they had a much more evolved category they're much more kind of lifestyle brands in that space and in the UK it just really hadn't gone that journey and I think when you're considering launching a food product and you want it to be a mainstream brand that's sort of in supermarkets it's actually quite difficult, I think, to find gaps in categories. And I sort of thought there was a genuine gap in this space for a brand to be better for you, delicious, celebrate flavour and playful and sort of appeal to a consumer a bit like me. So, yeah, food's always been a massive thing in my in my background, in my family. And, you know, I, and this was a product that I just naturally loved and saw a problem with as a consumer and sort of just started literally tinkering with it in my kitchen. Really? And wow. went from there. 
How long did it take you to get to the product that you then went to market with? Or was it a series of iterations? Yeah, I mean, I think it always evolves. And you know what, even now, you're always tweaking and playing with a food product, I think. And and for me, I'd started at at markets because that was literally just the only way I thought about how to actually get something out the door. I had no idea how to manufacture something. I didn't know how food products actually arrive in someone's, in the stores themselves. So making it in my kitchen was just like my easiest way of kind of, minimum viable product whatever it is just get it out of my head into something tangible so bought a blender bought a load of ingredients and just started playing with it and I think over the time I was at markets I played with the recipe loads and I tweaked and kind of got feedback from people in real time but then also I think when you're working on something you know even now we're iterating like all the small little details like even just like the fineness of the way that we mill or we'll be playing with the roast levels to make sure there's that consistency and depth of flavor or like the ingredients that you use I mean there are 40 different types of almonds that you could select from in terms of variants like they all have different profiles of flavor like what is it what is it that you're looking for and similarly with things like you know other nuts like peanuts and things so I think it's that iterative process that you constantly are building on in the same way that you know an app has constant iterations. You're never just leaving it and just saying it's done. So yeah, it's, it is an evolving beast, but certainly in the early days, it was like lots of kind of literal recipe testing in my kitchen. And to be honest, it wasn't that complicated, I guess, at that stage. So yeah, it's, but but I have to say, it's probably the bit of my job that I love the most. I'm not as much in the kitchen myself now, but if I can spend an afternoon like looking at our products and really thinking about the problems we need to solve with them, then I really enjoy that. So when, when did you make this? So I've got this wonderful vision of you in your kitchen kind of, you know, coming up with the recipes. Yeah. When, when did you make the jump to sort of manufacture at, at scale? And, and how, how did that all work? Because at some point, obviously, you know, you're in most most major supermarkets now, aren't you? So yeah. how was the transition from the kitchen table to a sort of mass-produced product? Uh, I mean, it's always the hardest thing, I think, of a startup journey when you're launching a food brand. For me... Markets was just a testing ground. It wasn't really like the business that I wanted to see like or have. It was I always knew I'd need to somehow scale up the production and whether you'd choose to make your own facility and buy all the equipment or you work with the experts and partners and manufacturers that can help you scale quicker. I think the hardest thing is just finding the right partner because once you found that actually you can lean on them and like and especially someone that doesn't have a manufacturing background necessarily like you need good people that can help hold your hand certainly in those early days what I always find surprising when you think about starting a a food brand is that you've got this great idea great product tastes great everyone gives you great feedback and then you go out and try and like find someone that's going to work with you to scale it up and you get a lot of crickets you know a lot of people just not answering your phone call and it's because you're small you don't really know what you're doing you're probably quite hard work and really that kind of finding the right manufacturing partner is a real like it's the same way that you have to pitch to investors or pitch to somebody that's going to join your team like it's a constant sell like selling the dream as to why they should give give you a punt and 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 work with you but really so finding the needle in the haystack effectively to which you know you can go about in all sorts of different ways to find the right kind of partner and then once you found that then then really it's a case of just really working collaboratively with them leaning on their manufacturing knowledge as well as also you know working with some experts or consultants because I think a food product is something that people eat and it sounds obvious but you've got to make sure it's super safe as much as it is also got to be totally delicious so it's like a responsibility that you've got as well as much as anything else but I'd say from the point of saying right I'm going to scale this up it probably took 
about eight months to find the right factory and then a further six to seven months to actually get the product from what I'd be making in my kitchen into a product that was being um, made in a in a factory and that's just lots of trials you know finding the right packaging finding the right suppliers sourcing the right ingredients like refining it down and 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 figuring out what the process steps are you know our products are like thankfully quite simple but even with those uh, there are like complexities within it which I think quite rightly consumers have no idea about really but it's kind of those little things that make the dna of your product yeah. i guess and did, did you in, in the early days did you have to commit to minimum run length run lengths i know when mm-hmm. i had a brief stint kind of as part owner of a juice company and we, we also made other people's brands and yeah. it was very familiar the way you tell a story because we'd often get entrepreneurs turn up and say i've got this amazing idea for this new coconut water for example and but we want to start with a hundred cases yeah. and and you know our production line you know would only switch on for two thousand at yeah. a time so of thing so and the entrepreneurs would go well look it's going to be massive I mean this is a massive opportunity it's going to be the biggest thing ever and it would cost us more to switch the line over just to do the 100 cases than than was worth it so I really empathize with the whole you know finding the right partner but did you have to commit to you know minimum volumes yeah and I think that's always one of the scariest things actually it's like there is an inevitability that if you're going to choose that route you kind of have to agree a, a minimum that you can work to and again, that's why finding the right partner is key because hopefully someone, you need to find someone small enough that is willing to do sort of the minimum amount of products that you need, but then at the same time be able to scale with you if it suddenly starts to get traction. So I, I think our first production run was about 10,000 units. So it wasn't even that big, but if, you know, at the time I think I had just Selfridges locked, locked down as a customer and it was a real uncomfortable moment the first wow. day of getting it made because I was like, God, it was just before Christmas in 2014. I text my sister being like, if this doesn't work, I'm going to be sitting on so <laughs> much product. It's going to be, you're going to be getting it for years to come for Christmas. Oh. So yeah, it is never okay. And what's the sure. shelf life typically? So how long do you have to sell all that stock? Yeah, I mean, we've got 12 month shelf life. So I think that's, again, by accident, but very luckily don't have to worry about shelf life. Like if you make a yogurt or, you know, a drinks brand, a fresh drinks brand, then you've got... A real turn that you have to kind of manage so we're fortunate that actually we don't have to worry too much about that and actually you've got some time to like get out there and sell it oh well done and Selfridges was the first customer was it that's right yeah Selfridges was our first customer and I guess for the first kind of year or so year in particular solely focused on trying to build the brand in London and I think distribution and finding the right kind of stocking points for and kind of premium accounts is such a great when you've got literally zero budget on for marketing, it's such a great kind of marketing tool to be cherry picking all the hip places. As seen in Selfridges type. Exactly. Type idea, yeah. And just like using your distribution almost as marketing, be in every cool gym and be in every kind of hip cafe. And by association, you're kind of building your brand and kind of, I mean, it's the Oatly model if you look at what they do with baristas, I guess. So that first year was like real groundwork laying the foundations before kind of starting to go any wider with like bigger supermarkets I think that's top advice yeah so you've, you've placed a big bet 10,000 orders or a big order right 10,000 uh, units how much did you then sell in your first year I think we sold about 45,000 units so like not a lot comparative comparatively to like actually the MOQ I think we did a handful of production runs that year so that was our first year and I think I did the math actually just recently over the course of the last sort of seven years we've sold over 17 million units now so it's, oh, it's a funny like yeah, if you kind of math. think of the hockey stick yeah. but yeah it's like a nice moment and feeling yeah 
it's oh, it's it's great great to kind of reflect back on that how are you financing yourself as well because I, i'm guessing that the margin on 40 you know forty five thousand units yeah. is not exactly giving you a, a lifestyle and probably not even paying the mortgage yeah. but how, how did you get through the first you know year or two yeah i think the startup phase i mean in just the couple it took two years to get the business up and running and i didn't pay myself anything over those couple of years I did do a kind of small crowdfunding um, campaign just before I launched the business so I did a crowdcube sort of equity crowdfund I raised about 120 grand just before the business launched officially and that helped fund proportion of my living I guess but you know for the first two three years you're paying yourself less than 20 grand a year and just really investing as much as you possibly can back in the business and I think that's sort of one of the benefits. I started up the business when I was 24. And I guess at that age, to be honest, like you've got no overheads, really you've got no responsibilities. So in some ways, that's the time to be like as bootstrapped as you like, really. You've got not much that you need to really do. And actually, I spent, lived and breathed this business. I still do, but particularly in the first couple of years. So to be honest, it, it wasn't too much of a big deal. But yeah, inevitably, I think I was very conscious, like, if I don't need to take money out of this business, if I can be as stripped back as I possibly can, it's going to help in the long run and just mean that, you know, that runway when you're raising money is just that little bit longer. I love that advice, actually. If, if there's one thing I would do different, I think, in my career, I, w- I would invent something in my 20s because mm. the, the further you go, once you've got kids and the house and that kind of thing, suddenly the kind of, like, minimum wage you need to take out of a business suddenly is way higher sort of thing. I think that's a great time to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it comes with its negatives. Like, you know, you have endless amounts of energy and you can just throw, you can do ridiculous hours and it's great, but you're probably also at the same time like incredibly ineffe- inefficient, impulsive. And I don't know, you, you've, got not, you've not got the lessons learned or the network or whatever, or even just, you know, the financial support in the background. Like it's, I think a great thing to do. And I think it's great. Never, no regrets starting a business in my sort of mid twenties, but yeah, I don't doubt I probably, uh, Waste a lot of time as well in the same process. I remember um, if you come across Adam Morgan, you know, he wrote Eat the Big Fish, of course, Uh, absolute legend. And he uses this phrase where everybody likes with intelligent naivety, Mm -hmm. and that sometimes actually a bit of naivety in a category or startup is quite good because if you knew too much, you probably would never have, you know, never have done some of the stuff, you know. Totally. I sometimes think that when we sort of look at new products, because for instance, you know, we'll do some consumer insights, we might look at the category size and what's going on in the category, blah, blah, blah. And if you looked at the raw hard data, sometimes you just you wouldn't launch anything. No. Like if you looked at our category, you'd be like, it's quite small. You know, there's you know already existing players there that are doing well, that are growing well. And like, what's your positioning? There's no gap for you. And it's amazing actually that you can find slithers of gaps or you can convince yourself out of something really easily by taking it too far on the data side and not enough on like the emotional kind of feeling that sort of driving you to launch something and I think that's one of the hardest things almost as the business matures that you've got to like rely on that still that gut instinct but weirdly in some ways as you get longer down the line like you start to feel like you should be using more data to support everything and I think because you've got more to lose in some ways but it's a a funny thing you need to hold on to because it's really easy to kind of be like oh I don't know what I'm talking about I need to like rely on the data and not the gut whereas the gut is informed by all sorts of different touch points like you know 
sort of layers of knowledge I think is where gut feeling comes from so it's not just this random like oh we should impulse it's often coming from a position of like having thought about something for a long time and almost that subconscious Mm. kicking in I guess to some degree it's interesting sort of touching on doubt as well because doubt is such a big battle isn't it and and you you know, I, I know you might think, oh, it'd be impossible to get into Tesco, for example. And, and so you, you must look back at these big moments in, in, in the kind of journey with some satisfaction. But were there were there any big doubts you had to overcome as, as you sort of as you grew things that you thought would never happen that have happened? Yeah, I think in the first few years, you I almost didn't really have those so much. It was like the landscape's so open. You can go after everything and everything's a possibility. I actually think it's sort of later down the line when like actually you get a bit more informed about like how hard it is that's when like you you doubt yourself a bit more about can I deliver this growth or is this new product range going to be successful or not whereas you know when you're first getting out the door in the first couple of years like everything's the first go at it you know and you've got so much opportunity in front of you 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 don't you just you don't really take any anything too too hard so if you're you know if a buyer says no once you're like well just go I'll just go back to them in six months and have a better argument to take to them or and I think to some degree I think I've always had quite a lot of confidence in Pippin Up because I know that the brand at its fundamental level is really strong and I know that it's from day one has had a a real like reaction from consumers so I think that really quells a lot of like the doubts or fears but I certainly now when I think about you know we've got a pipeline of innovation that we're looking to launch we're trying to jump into new categories which some of which are quite competitive lots of innovation from lots of brands and things like that I that's when I start to doubt because I I think it's you know the stakes feel higher now because actually we've got an established brand and I want to see it succeed and I want to see it like achieve what I think it should do and some of these sort of and or another good example is going into like new markets you know we're looking at some big new markets and you know even considering the US at the moment and you know I know how big that market is and you know how easy it is to burn through cash and so those are things where like the doubts creep in where you're like can I deliver this have I got the skills skill set and um, ability to be able to navigate some of these like big challenges and Am I taking on too much or too less, too much, actually? Sometimes I worry that that's, you know, you're trying to do everything. And, and that's certainly a mistake I've made in the past. So I think those are things almost like once you start to learn some hard lessons, you start to, that actually starts to come into your mind a bit more than maybe at the start where you're just a bit, yeah, that to makes, your that point, makes naive. Yeah. But also what, what, what I love about your story is, is you're so passionate about what you've created and you've got all this feedback from people that, you know, mm. and that, that's really powerful because you know it works and you know it's going to get a good reaction. I suppose you're in a different stage now, aren't you, where you've got, you know, innovation, you've got lots of markets and you've got to make big decisions on where you put the team and resources. Exactly, it, yeah. It's, it, I, I can see how you're juggling a lot more. Yeah, and it, I think it's all like doing too much is such a, a common mistake, I think, for entrepreneurs starting off a business or later down the line it's and it's I think sometimes you forget that like there's it's like a cost really if you do too much or you try and take on too much you just do nothing well and also equally when you're trying to make choices between things like doing one thing actually means you're not going to do another so it feels like you're really like 
can be some big decisions. The trade-offs are real, aren't they? Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. that. Well, one thing I, got, I think you got really right from the beginning is, is your design, of course. Mm. So how did you, because you work with B&B, don't you, yeah. on, on the design. G- given your sort of boot, bootstrapped at the time, how did, you, how, well, how did you find B&B? How did the design come about? And, and how did you afford to bring in a team as talented as them? Yeah, and I think the design world, again, as someone who, like I said, knew nothing about business, yeah, bringing on sort of experience as a design agency was for me like, it was a big expense at that early stage. You know, I really didn't have much budget. And, but I think what I did know is that ultimately to the competitive landscape in supermarkets is so fraught and it is so tough. And I think if you don't have cut through, if you don't have a strong brand, you're just never going to get any traction these days. And I think that I knew from the start. And I was like, if I'm going to place any bets and any investment, I'll place it on the brand because that's what you're building fundamentally. I found B&B, I think through the brands that I love. So they made or kind of created the brands like Bear Nibbles, which is like a fruit snacking brand. I knew from their portfolio that they, you know, at their previous agency, they'd done a lot of work on Innocent and, you know, they'd done design work for Proper and Fever Tree. And I was like, these are iconic brands that I love. And I think, I think what they've done and do so well is that emotional piece that they really get. And I, I trust, and I think, ultimately when I met them I really liked them as people and I think that I think is you can't it's sort of that the intangible bit isn't it like they care a lot don't they they care a lot Sean is an incredibly like straight talking but really like just gets it and and likewise Kerry is very sharp and and smart so I don't know I think you buy from people and and so I, I liked them as people and I thought I'd love to see if I can work with them um so actually, they they agreed to take some equity in the business to do the design work, and that was one of the oh, ways that I move. managed to afford it because you know they're brilliant designers, and I, I didn't quite have the budgets to afford them in the first place. So they agreed to take a punt. So they were actually our first investors as a, as a business, right. which was a real like milestone, I think, for me because you know I think getting that validation from two really experienced people in the industry who were willing to sort of invest and kind of support and and create what I think has been a beautiful brand that's evolved from that sort of yeah. initial identity creation yeah and no, it, it, it's it's a superb job it, i remember actually when i worked with a private equity company for a short period of time mm-hmm. and they that they that, that it was really interesting because you kind of assume that it's all big and complicated how how they evaluate you know business opportunities they invest in but they actually boil it down to three things mm-hmm. is that the first thing they do every single time they buy a business is buy is is employ the best designers they possibly can and over invest in that and they yeah. that their advice is if you get that bit right then pretty much everything else follows. They always start there. Second thing they do is um, invest really high quality manufacturing mm-hmm. capacity. And the third thing is just hiring talent. Yeah. And they, they, they just stick to that recipe of those three things. Yeah. But I, I was quite surprised. I, I assumed it'd be all very clever and scientific in terms of how you, how you kind of grow a business, but they stick to those three principles really. Yeah, and I think different businesses maybe can afford to be, to perhaps bootstrap that aspect of it a little bit more, but you know, food and drink products, like products have to be desirable. Like yeah. you have to want to hold them and touch them. And like, you know, even if it is just an everyday product, like nut butter is, it's something you might eat on your toast every day. It's not gin or a vodka, but it's, it's a very different proposition, but you still want to have that. And it's still got to be desirable, especially if you're trying to bring a, a premium brand to the market. So yeah, I think it's a, a fundamental thing that I think you pay for what you get as well when it comes to oh, creative. Okay. Like try and scrimp on it and you know, you'll you'll get a half cut yeah. piece of work. 
quite I mean, rightly. I mean, it pays for itself so quickly as exactly. well. Because like when you're pitching to retailers and you've got something really compelling and, and well designed like that, it makes the job a whole lot easier. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, so was this design the first design they pitched at you or did they give you a range? How did that? Yeah, I remember they, we did actually also explore a different name. So the, I, I came with them with the name of Pippa Nut. I initially was not sure. I, was, I thought it potentially... Had you called it Pippa Nut before? Yeah, or, so at market you, stores, I'd that, done like a, some cheap and cheerful sort of labels with a friend who'd designed them and it was called Pippa Nut. And I, I, one of the bits of work was, let's see if there's another name that we should go with. And I, I initially was like, I'm not sure if I want my name in it as well. You know, I didn't know if I wanted to be so closely affiliated with, with the brand, which I now, but... So we stress tested the name and then also did it, you know, kind of created the identity and like the uh, the logo. And they did, they gave me probably about six different options. But this was, I knew instinctively, it was the second design that they showed and I was like, this is it. And to be honest, even once they showed it to me, they did some minor tweaks on to kind of improve and kind of refine sort of the, the, the logo in particular. But it was brilliant. I just loved the... I loved everything about it. Like, you know, there's in the logo, all the lettering leans forwards. It's quite like it's got a lot of movement, which, you know, for a brand, it's, our brand's all about positive energy. It's got character that you can really speak through. It's got the ability to create that kind of moat, I think, around the business where you can use so much. You can build such a brilliant brand world with a, an identity that has such feeling. So, yeah, I, I loved it. So they did, they were very smart, I think. And, yeah, haven't haven't looked back since. And it's, it's been very consistent as well, isn't it? I mean, yeah, a lot of brands kind of chop and change, don't they, as, yeah. as they grow. But I think you've been really consistent. So it looks like you nailed it first time. Yeah. Which is brilliant. Yeah, a lot to thank, to thank them for that. Yeah, yeah. Good good shout out for B&B there. Uh, t- t- so when did you get your first sort of major national listing? You talked about starting off in, in London, Selfridges, and you know a lot, a lot of kind of iconic brands do, do it that way. When, when did your first sort of national retailer... Yeah, the first biggie was Sainsbury's at the back end of our first year of business. So we won that in November. I think it was four products went into 400 stores. And yeah, it was an incredible moment, actually, though. I mean, it's a funny, weird thing with supermarkets is that everyone thinks that like, once you get the listing, though, that's like the easy bit done. Or like, or you can just sit, no, no, the hard bit done. Sorry, you can just sit, put your feet up and just watch the sales roll in. But really, like in reality, that's like the just the start of it really but I do remember it I remember it being particularly because we were really bootstrapped at the time and we had to order a lot of our product up front because the manufacturing terms that we had at the time weren't particularly good and it pretty much drained the whole bank account I think there was one p left in the bank after placing that manner that order for that buy-in for that that listing so it was again like it's like weird thing highs and lows like you can have a high in one moment where you're just like celebrating a new listing it's all going really well and then you realize that you've barely got money to pay for it so yeah so the bittersweetness but obviously it's like good it's a good opportunity it's a good thing to to happen and yeah it was I guess for me was the moment where you started to the brand starts to go national and you really get a real test of whether or not this is a a mainstream brand which is ultimately what what I wanted to create was something that would be found in people's cupboards up and down the country so yeah, that first kind of four weeks of waiting and seeing what the rate of sale was like oh, was nerve-wracking wow. stuff. I bet. And what was the rate of sale? Did you? Did you? Yeah, I mean that's start? the thing with Sainsbury's. I, I now would always recommend if you're a premium brand, like obviously there's lots of good supermarkets to work with, but they have been amazing partners over the last sort of four, five, what seven years, and 
because of that as well their customer i think naturally lends themselves to that, that slightly more premium market but still they've got this scale because obviously they've got you know so many stores as well so it's a great one for a kind of a premium mainstream brand where you're trying to get you know scale whilst at the same time still make sure you're you're reaching a consumer and i think there is something to be said about keeping focus and not going too wide too soon i can think of maybe a couple of occasions where maybe we got too much distribution too quickly and actually it's better to kind of focus on you know one supermarket and even just a handful of stores I say handful like 300 stores versus maybe going to the full estate because you know ultimately in the same way that you're trying to build awareness outside of the store like you've got to build awareness in store at shelf make sure it works and I don't know you could you've you've got to when you're small invest and invest invest at shelf and so yeah keeping it tight is a good thing and not being too greedy because you can quickly find that it unravels and you haven't got the brand awareness to actually support that's the really rate good of advice that yeah. yeah it's interesting i did a did a study when i was years ago when i was at britvic actually looking mm. at um i was setting up an innovation team and uh, i was looking at the, the i think I, the 20 most successful soft drink innovations of the last sort of 10 years and what was very, very interesting about it was, well, A, a how many failed? I mean, it, it followed the rules that we all know about. Eight out of 10 didn't, didn't ever make yeah. it. But what was really interesting, what caught my eye was, if I looked at the successes in year one, they were unrelated to successes in year five or 10. So what you tended to happen is you'd have kind of big bang launches where, you know, they would literally get distribution from day one. With almost out, with access, there's only one that I think actually survived long term. But most of those kind of just come and go. But, the, you know, I mean, in soft drinks, things like Relentless, for example, or Fever Tree or Innocent, what they've done is what you've done, really, which is they, they, they pick a channel or even a you know, sub-channel, nail it, and then gradually build out. As a, you know, and, and it's incredible. So what you see, you know, after five to ten years, those brands are unrelated to the ones that have a big first year. Yeah, exactly. And I think often I think you see like niches is like when you're a challenger small brand, you can afford to play around in the niches, whereas like you know, Diageo or someone can't really afford to to maybe invest as heavily or put that much time and energy into what feels like a really small sort of niche within a within a category. And actually sometimes, you know, the innocent, you know, smoothies was really their, their niche, but then it was juice that yeah, got them exactly, scale. Yeah. So it's, you know, so that's often when I think about sort of the nutbuster world, it's like, it is a relatively small category and actually we fulfill a a niche within it but it's that once you've got that brand established where can you stretch it to to then get that you know further reach and kind yeah. of scale as a business but that's exactly it is it. interesting and yeah. it's also the focus because i know at britvic we had a really big portfolio mm. and so when we launched something new it would have one month of focus so you have a calendar you know 12, 12 you know 12 kind of focus periods whatever and each one had a primary focus a secondary and a tertiary one so even getting on the list of things that were going to be done was quite hard so an innovation would get like four weeks kind of focus and then literally forget about it yeah. and then a year later it'd be another innovation would come out and it'd be the next thing so th- so there was no nurturing at all yeah. and this is the this is a challenge so i can really see how in your situation where you know everything depends on the success of one product yeah. and you focus yeah. entirely on it it's going to make a huge difference yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Amazing. Right. So how, how, how have you, because it's really interesting when you're talking about the, 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 the kind of cash flow, it's always a thing, isn't it, with, with yeah. kind of founders and startups. So, I, I mean, how generous were Sainsbury's in terms of payment terms? How did you manage that kind of going from, you know, a small London kind of base to national distribution? How yeah. did you manage the cash flow and the financing of the business in that? I mean, I think it's, it works both ways. It's not just Sainsbury's, but it's also your factory giving you good payment terms yeah. as well. And that like cycle being the right thing. So, you know, again, comes back to working with the right people. If you can find a factory that can give you a 60 day payment terms so that, you know, you don't have to pay them as long as, you know, and, and you can get into a, a healthy cycle where maybe the supermarket pays you in 30, you're actually in a really good place. Now, that's not always necessarily feasible when you work with certain retailers. I wouldn't say Sainsbury's are particularly bad. They're just sort of, I guess, standard terms and you can negotiate them down, particularly when you're small, because you can you can really play that that startup card and you know, a buyer can be sympathetic to it sometimes. But I think we have scaled the business through raising investment over time, enabled us to continue to kind of invest in bigger marketing activation and team and things like that, but also leaning on other partners. So you know, you've got your bank who, again, should be there to help support you and things like invoice financing or, you know, giving you overdraft facilities and things like that, again, all help contribute to having that good, good kind of cash flow cycle. But, you know, we've always been of the kind of, I guess, strategy that we, we want to scale this as quickly as we can. So therefore, like, raise money, you know, to enable us to do that. So, yeah, we've raised probably about nearly four million over the last sort of few years. And, yeah, really that, that's given us that feel that we've needed to kind of get the brand to where it is today and really kind of see see us kind of, and, and we'll continue to raise money, I think, as well as we yeah. go into new spaces and new, new and countries. And is, is that kind of crowdsourced funding or is it private yeah, investment? Yeah, all through, a lot through high net worth, some through venture capital as well now. So yeah, it's been a mixture and, and really I think try to, I think the most important thing though is to try and again, try and keep it as simple as you possibly can. Like, you know, find the right people that, aren't going to be on your back all the time trying to get you to do reporting because I think I think you start a business because you want to like have a level of independence and like you want to be able to take risks as well and you need partners that are going to support that kind of that kind of attitude as well so find people that trust you what you do give you advice when you need it don't tell you what to do ever but and give you that space but I think it's yeah it's 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 a really important relationship that you get you get into with investors and you know I'm sure everyone's heard a horror story or, or another from various different I don't know institutional money that people take and it's it is something which can be incredibly valuable if you get the right people but also can be a real kind of pull if you don't so it's something which we're lucky to have some brilliant investors who and, and a, a great board as well that we now have that I lean on to kind of get that kind of helicopter pull myself out of the day-to-day kind of perspective every every few months you mentioned it a few times actually the, the importance of the people you work with and for and and invest in you i mean it's incredibly important isn't it because i know that the times where i've been in sort of situations of raising money you you've, you focus on i need to get the money or the investment yeah. and actually probably the people that you do business with are probably more important mm-hmm. than actually the sums of money it's like are they going to support you when it's difficult yeah. are they going to give you advice are they people you want to have by your side and it's amazing, isn't it, how important people are? Yeah, like my main investor is a guy called Giles Brook, and he's sort of run lots of different oh, businesses yeah. and ran Vita Coco. And he's he's someone that's been there, done that. He's seen every skeleton in any every closet in other businesses. So 
great to be able to go to someone when you've got a problem and you think it's like the world is collapsing and he he often would give he's that good sounding partner who would will tell me that it's not so bad and give me an even worse story to kind of blow mine out the, <laughs> That's good. the water and it always made me feel better yeah. and I, I find that empathy that he has yeah. to kind of like the sympathy that actually startups and scale-ups are messy disorganized sometimes it doesn't all go right but there's a lot that goes well and so yeah I think he's someone that I don't think he's ever told me explicitly that I've ever got to take his advice he just gives it and says it's up to you what you want to do with it and I respect that as a individual because you know he's invested his money and he could in theory get quite kind of you know want to get involved a bit more but he really does give me space which I I think has meant that we've had a great like working relationship over the last seven years so yeah I think find find good people who who know their stuff who can apply it into your kind of business but who ultimately still let you run it and run it as it's yeah. yours is is vital. Yeah, no, that's great to have that support, isn't it? So, so tell me what the what's been the toughest part of this journey for you? If you look back over the seven or eight years, what's been the what was the hardest moment? What's been the hardest moments? I think I think some of the hardest bits I've had, which is. I think when when products haven't worked have been really difficult. Like you know we had a range of almond milks which I ended up delisting a few years ago. And when you put your heart and soul into something and then you kind of have to pull the plug on something, I find that really difficult. And always look back on it and think, glad I did that. I'm glad I I called it when I did and didn't kind of drag it out for too long. But I think that I find difficult, particularly when you've invested in it and you're committed and you're like you want to make it work, but it's not. So that that I think is difficult. And I think I think ultimately the last few years have been a challenge. I think for me, as somebody that started this business relatively young, didn't necessarily have any food and drink experience, like, and then also now having a team of, of, of people, about 25 people in the business now, I think for me as a personal challenge, like learning how to be a leader and like having, having to figure that out, like what that means for me. And I think the last couple of years with COVID has really helped me on that in some ways because it's almost like forced the agenda to really step up I think for for my team and be you know I think you know people particularly when there's a lot of turmoil they need direction they need that feeling of security or at least and trust with someone and so I think for me really developing and, and growing my leadership skills has been something that has been a personal challenge but one that I've enjoyed and and it's certainly come I think I've got stronger as as a leader I think over the last couple of years with COVID turning the world upside down <laughs> but has has it been um easy to delegate I mean you always imagine as a founder you you, yeah. you know you're so you know you're so on top of everything and, and actually to grow you need to bring in other people to take take that off you How, how's that gone yeah I think that's such a good question because and that is really is a challenge as like when you think of this thing this business that you create as your baby you've actually got to some point like let go of it and let it like have its own legs with other people as well but and I'd say like you know for instance with my marketing director and she won't mind me talking about this like I say that's also a real like challenge because again when you're so close to something and you care so much about it you've got to also let your marketing team get on with it and and you take that step back so like holding back sometimes to enable other people to have ideas because I read some I was speaking to my coach about it the other day and it's like she was saying how you can't assume that you know you're not going to be you're not right all the time about your brand you might know 
the most about it than anyone else but it doesn't mean that every decision or every every idea that you have is the right one and that actually you need to give space for people to be able to bring their ideas to the table and she was giving this example where you know I might be right 50 times out of 100 and maybe somebody not quite so close to it might be right 30 times out of 100 but together you can like get the closer to you know success if you work collaboratively and I think that is the ultimate is a a real challenge as you start to divest yourself of like certain things across the business and recognize actually if you brought someone brilliant into the business like my marketing director like there's no point hiring or bringing that team member in if you're going to just quash every idea and you know be hovering around trying to pick at it so I think you've got to really like learn to like trust people and and let it evolve as whilst also still sort of being around the edges yeah I presume there must be a point where you, where, you, where you sort of let go a little bit and go, that's not quite how I'd have done it. Yeah. <laughs> and that must be quite hard, isn't it? To see yeah. things being created around you that weren't necessarily entirely yours. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, and, and it might not be the way you've done it, but in a, in a good way, like it's a good yeah. thing. And yeah, almost like giving people the space because I think one of the main things about my team, we're still relatively small, but... I think if you work for a startup, scale-up business, you're entrepreneurial. You don't join a business that is relatively risky, is, you know, the small guy trying to get to, you know, David and Goliath kind of um, analogy. Like, you've got to be entrepreneurial. So if you kind of, again, quash that in someone, then you're really, like, you're, you're really losing so much talent that you could be nurturing and, and growing. So giving people autonomy is, I think, one of the most powerful things you can probably give as a as a as a leader but yeah there are definitely times where I I have to bite my tongue and be like you know what don't comment on it let let it be it doesn't need to be like have all these cooks trying to fiddle with something and so yeah learning to kind of step back I think is that's a big one one. I mean taking maybe the people aside for a minute but what have been the most important roles in allowing you to grow so as you've kind of expanded the business in the way that you have what, what have you what roles have you had to put in that have enabled growth that have been most important yeah I think it's that age-old thing of like finding certainly in the the initial stage of like what are your weak points and therefore like fill those gaps as as you grow and I think the yeah I mean (laughs) I think I could give examples of every person in my team that when I've hired it suddenly a real like oh my god I can't believe I survived without you before this moment but I think for me what comes first always is like sales so you know my first hires were in sales and partly because you you know how much marketing you do if you're not on shelf you're not visible if not available then there's no point spending any money money on marketing and so that for me felt so critical so that was always like the first step but then ultimately once you do have that distribution you really got to make sure you're supporting it and I think particularly when it comes to marketing and you've got bigger and bigger budgets actually the thought of wasting money becomes the bigger problem like you can spend and be quite fragmented I think often in a startup at the early stage you can you're not always being really strategic with how you spend money but if which is kind of you can get away with it when the budget's tiny when it gets bigger actually that is you know a you know painful exercise if you're if you're not if you're not being careful so I think 
yeah at different stages and phases you'll need those kind of like plugins but kind of depends on what the needs mm. are of the business and of course you've gone on tv as well yeah. haven't you? so you're, you're now in the in the grown-up world of tv yeah. advertising which is a nerve-wracking <laughs> place to be that's I'm a, not big, that's a big one isn't it yeah yeah when you start to up your media budgets which is still fractional whenever we speak to a media agency they almost laugh us out the door because yeah. then nothing compared to the big guys but it is a nerve-wracking moment because it'll be you know a, a third of your marketing budget is going on that one moment and you've got to trust that you believe that you've created some brilliant creative and you know really done your homework but I think ultimately you've got to get that reach and, and that long-term brand building which is why we, we are investing in TV because it's very difficult to do that particularly a product which is a sort of take-home product that you find in supermarkets it's quite difficult to get that awareness up um, and quickly in a quite established category without sort of investing in some of those big media moments but yeah we haven't got the results back from the tv campaign but there's a it's going to be a real like nervousness in the meeting when we finally see those those numbers and hope that it's done that job of pushing our awareness up nationally yes i mean I, i'm assuming you've still got re- relative modest budgets compared yeah. to you know big advertisers so yeah. how do you go about making a tv ad for the first time yeah i mean i think work with good you know we don't work with the biggest creative agencies and by that you 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 in themselves they are slightly leaner I think as in, as organisations and slightly more willing to work with smaller budgets potentially doesn't mean that they lack any less creative or talent it's just you know they've not got so much of the overheads that perhaps other other agencies might do and again we work with you know brilliant kind of production company and director who she herself was like kind of developing her career and emerging and I think finding people to work with that you know are on that trajectory where they're building their portfolio incredibly talented people but maybe aren't necessarily the director that you know a Unilever brand might choose to work with actually you can get a really great piece of creative out the door and then keeping the concept simple I mean we shot our ad in one day so it wasn't a multi-day shoot we had two one main actor in it with I forget the word but a sec- you know a second actor in there a, more, a mi- minor actor and so again you weren't paying lots of kind of fees for lots of a big cast and a big setup so I think you can try and keep it simple by not quashing a creative yeah. idea but just making sure the parameters that you're doing are are, are are okay so I think yeah it was a big investment don't get me wrong but I think I think our, our ad is quite creative it's quite it really plays upon like a brand truth which is that you know one of the things that from very early on is that we got one of the reasons why our Instagram, for instance, is such a big audience, we've got about 120,000 people on Instagram is because people continually took pre- pictures of their breakfast. Like we get thousands of pictures of people tagging us in their breakfast every day. And the ad itself plays upon this truth that people love getting up and getting into awkward, weird positions to take pictures of their, their breakfast in the morning. And it's a little nod and a little little piss take but not nothing too like uh pokey and i think it has that kind of brand truth that runs yeah. through it which is why i think the ad works so well and it's sort of a playful take on what is effectively a, an ad trying to communicate that this tastes delicious and so we hope we'll be able to uh, we've already dabbled and and kind of played with some media and like the media investment this time last year so we played around and understood maybe what needs to change maybe the edit needs to change a little bit maybe tweaks to the voiceover so that when this year came around, we actually went bigger with our investment from a media perspective. So we, I guess, tested and learned even a little bit with TV before actually investing. And we'll hopefully 
if it works again we'll, yeah. we will invest again and try and stretch that media budget or the creative budget as, as hard as possible over as much media as that media as we can afford i was gonna say because the cost of tv has gone up a lot this mm. year as well i think yeah. all-time high now how's this year what's the plans for this year so this year we've just run our big campaign so january for january is like our big moment for our brands it's natural kind of recruitment moment so that'll be a real big kind of wait and see moment now we are doing lots of kind of different product development this year so that's where a lot of our focus is going as a team so you know i mentioned earlier we're looking at new categories so looking at how we can kind of broaden our portfolio particularly within the kind of world of snacking so that's a big focus about for us as a business as well as sort of innovation within our core and then i think for us we're looking at how we can invest in our like London audience. Obviously, we've just done a big national TV campaign, which does have reach within London. We also want to make sure we're doing sort of activations as we now come out of COVID that are a bit more engaging, a bit deeper with our consumers. So, you know, we're looking at sort of some large scale sort of, sort of experiential events, hopefully towards the back end of kind of autumn time, um, where we can start to kind of reconnect a little bit with our consumer because for us, we're brought up all about taste mm. once you try it like people love it so actually being like physically with people to be able to sample and and hand out samples is a big part of our marketing mix normally it's just the last couple yeah, of years that's made sense, that isn't it? tough and this is about 2019 you, you got b corp status as well how important is that to you really important and we're recertifying again this year so and we hope to improve upon the score that we had uh, back in 2019 but Sustainability is a massive thread of what we're working on over the next three years. One of our main sort of strategic pillars, we're looking at everything from how we can remove plastic from our whole range. We're looking at uh, committed to net zero, scope one, two by next year will be net zero. And then the final scope three will be 2040. Um, and as well as also looking at other kind of ways that within our supply chain, we can really improve. So I'm really interested in regenerative agriculture, our products are predominantly nuts which are grown in trees and in the ground so actually how can we from a sustainability perspective actually improve the sort of agricultural practices that are used there so it's a big passion point of mine I think COP26 was a real like I think eye-opener for business where actually like we are a product manufacturer like we have an impact we need to sort it out so yeah big focus I guess B Corp is holistic it looks across you know internally as well as like what you do from a kind of environmental perspective so it naturally threads through the culture and dna of the brand as well amazing so as as you look back over the last few years at what point or maybe maybe you don't think this but at what point do you think it's been a success or are you always looking ahead how how, how do you evaluate it i was thinking about this the other day because goalposts just continually move Mm. and it is both why I do it but equally one of the most frustrating things because you you get over a certain hurdle and you think I thought four years ago if I'd said that we were in 7,000 stores around the UK you'd be be pinching yourself nailed it just just done go home you're you're good whereas you always see then as soon as you reach one bit you then want to push yourself to the next level and but I think and and what is success really like and that's that was the real question I was asking myself like is success actually being able to like enjoy coming into work every day and work with a brilliant group of people that you actually get on with and find inspirational I'd say that would be a a good definition of success that you have a job and a work life I mean I don't think there is necessarily work-life balance but like you have a job that you enjoy I think that is success but 
has the brand achieved success? I think so, but I think we've got more that we can give. So that was a real waffly answer, basically me saying that I'm not really sure what success means, but I think there's many definitions, but you can often think commercially and think, if I reach this revenue number, if I hit this valuation, if I when I raise money, like, but I think it's slightly more intangible than that. I think it's more feeling than it is yeah. a number. Did, did, did you ever thought, did you ever think the business would be as big as it is today? I think I always hoped it would be, but did I ever think it, it almost, it's like when I look forwards over the next five years, that's where I think there's so much opportunity. I don't think I'd ever thought there would be this much sort of scope for growth and kind of, you know, stretch, I guess, for the business. And that, that I get really excited about because yeah creating a brand that you hope will be around for the next hundred years is a really cool idea so yeah I think it's a real it's been a real evolving beast and I don't think I could have imagined really what my day-to-day would have been like if you'd asked me when I was starting off it's a completely different kind of thing that that I've worked on over the last few years and that that's been a real joy so yeah I, I do I do love it Sometimes hate it. Well, I mean, so so few brands make it this far. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, you look at the statistics on innovation, eight out of 10 fail in, I think in the first 10 years or something. So, you know, you're in the rare group of brands, startup brands that have actually made it, which is incredible. Yeah, no, I remember actually when I, because I, like I said, didn't have any food and drink experience. So I reached out to a couple of friends who did work in food and drink when I was starting out, just go, went for a coffee and was shared my idea and asked them, you know, some basic questions of how to get going. And I remember one particular friend who, who actively said, and he was working at, for a drinks brand at the time, was like, don't do it, Pip. It's too hard. You, you just, it's so brutal. Like, just don't even, don't, just don't. And... Yeah, I almost did listen well, to him. And thankfully. I do, and sometimes, <laughs> yeah, it surprised me. I think, gosh, if I ever did another food brand, oh. would lightning strike twice because I've been so fortunate. But they're the things, that's, they're the things that plow in your mind, isn't it? Because it, it, this is where I was uh, talking about intelligent naivety before. Because I remember when I, in, in a weird sense, when I did all that Britvic research, I thought, my word, this is tough. Like, like most people don't succeed. And it can really put you off, yeah. I think. But actually, the, the, there's definitely a benefit in, in, in well, ignoring that. But you, obviously, you have to go in with your eyes open that, you know, failure can happen. Yeah. But equally, if you don't, if you don't take the bet, you'll never succeed. Yeah. You're guaranteed to fail if you don't try. Yeah. And, and what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. I always think that's a kind of reassuring thing to say to yourself. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Well, just go back to your, go back yeah. to your job, get exactly. another job. Like, exactly. it's fine. It's like you you learn so much in in creating something yeah. and it's one of the things which I why I like running a business so much is because like daily you learn something new I loved what you were saying about like you're net building your network and I think that is it's a bit of a horrible way to say it but relationships and learning from other people like the, the amount of times yeah, yeah where I'll pick up the phone if I've got an issue and speak to three other people to try and get an answer for what I could do it's I love that problem firefighting yeah, yeah. solving I actually quite like it when it like during bits of COVID I actually quite enjoyed bits of it because it was really firefighty it yeah. was like quite scrappy and you kind of had it's to quite energetic out. isn't it yeah, it's like it get, really keeps you on your toes yeah as much as also I didn't enjoy the, the global pandemic aspect of it but the yeah. <laughs> the kind of frenzy I did and yeah. I know some people wouldn't but for me I like that immediate yeah. fire feels like you're making a real difference it's visceral um, isn't it yeah, yeah. It, it actually it prompted me about something else is that 
uh, you don't need all the answers at the beginning because because often the, the the answers will present themselves as you go and uh, something i've often struggled with is feeling like i need to have everything answered up front but actually it's when only when you plunge yourself into the challenge that you suddenly you learn and you, you the answers kind of present themselves as you go sort of thing but yeah. if you want everything to be answered up front yeah. you'll never you'll never get off the starting block yeah it's that thing isn't it where if you've waited to i can't remember who's i'm stealing this from someone very well known but if you waited to you know 70 percent of it of of what you need to know you've waited too long yeah it'll be that, too late yeah exactly so you should just you've got to make some assumptions and let yourself and what, what's interesting hearing you talk about your story is how much you tried and how much you improved and refined as you went sort of thing, whether it's recipe or distribution or marketing, you know, it's learning all the time as you go and yeah. getting better and better. Yeah, learn by doing, don't do an, well, I actually would love to do an MBA, but you don't need to be, have an yes. MBA to do it. And I think partly because so much of what is starting certainly a food brand is quite practical and it's quite like, you know, yeah, you just need to get out there and start. Yeah, I think just starting is the best advice, isn't it? Just start, because then like yeah. you'll you'll learn so much. You will fail, of course, but you'll learn, and your 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 learning will accelerate so much quicker by that way. So take so so final question. Then take me back to twenty four year old Pip. Mm-hmm. What would you tell twenty four year old Pip now, looking back? I would tell her um, to. I think I think one thing I would tell her is to try really as much as you possibly can enjoy and take enjoy the first few years in particular. I think a lot of the time I would think on oh, five years time like that's when it will all be sorted and like it'll be really easy and great and you know and I almost kind of wished it away a bit I think and actually classic nostalgia is that you kind of look back and you're like those are the good days and I I almost wish I had taken more pictures and really like reveled in it and I think because it is like such a just great I mean it's super stressful but it's so fun at the same time and so I almost would tell her to probably try and not take take it too seriously and you know you know go for it a little bit more and just enjoy the moment because it is a unique moment I think running business now feels like in a, not in a negative way but more of a job now yes. whereas then it was such like a it's just, well it's more grown up now isn't it yeah You've got exactly millions of pounds at stake <laughs> that's it don't don't, <laughs> don't remind you it will, it will <laughs> yeah, freak me out that's great advice isn't it because because the more you i don't know the more you go on the more you realize it is the journey isn't it yeah. it, it, it is the people the journey the challenges the victories they're, they're the things that mean yeah. mean the most, aren't they? Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story. It's been really, really amazing to listen to. Thank you. It's been great being on the podcast. So, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was Pip Murray, founder of Pippa Nut, with a wonderful, wonderful story of how she created a peanut butter empire. If you'd like to find out more about Uncensored CMO, if you'd like to follow more episodes, then please do uh, check out Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now also Amazon Music as well. Please do leave me a review, remembering that five is the best. And hit the subscribe button if you can. I would love to keep you updated with all new episodes coming from the Uncensored CMO. And if you'd like to get in touch i am on social media i'm on twitter at uncensored cmo and you can find me on linkedin under my own name john evans that's john without an h i'd love to hear from you and uh, would be very welcome any episode suggestions or introductions thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate it and i look forward to next time thank you <laughs>